You are listening to National Security Law Today. We are back with an all-new episode of National Security Law Today. We are your source for national security law during quarantine, blizzards, other acts of God, and more. I'm Yvette, and we're here to talk about elections and national security. And I'm Nicole. Quick disclaimer, because lawyers need and live by disclaimers. The lawyers on NSLT are always here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. I'm Elisa, and our guest today is Edward B. Foley, Ned. He has argued that Americans need to be smarter about foreign influence efforts if they want to make good decisions in elections. And he may not be wrong. Ned directs election law at Moritz at Ohio State's Law School, where he also holds the Ebersold Chair in Constitutional Law. Um, And I'm not sure who has written more on the topic of election law than Ned. So given this is one of the major issues of our time and an issue of utmost importance to national security law, there will be listeners who will want to read through Ned's entire oeuvre. So if you're that person, we're gonna hyperlink all of Ned's books and his articles Um, all on the same topic, as well as his impressive bio, which includes a Supreme Court clerkship. And let me add, as we're recording today, we are one day out from the Washington Post publishing an opinion piece by Ned on what the limits of the law are presently. They may surprise some people. Ned, we're delighted that you can make time for us on NSLT. I'm delighted to be with you today. Thanks so much. All right, now let's establish a baseline on the law on elections, beginning with the Constitution. Sure. Uh, Fire away with questions, or I'm happy to go on at length. Oh, we love it when you go on at length. But um, what what does the Constitution say exactly about elections and the rights of individual citizens as far as elections go? Sure. Well, the Constitution is much more limited than I think most citizens realize in this regard. We've come to expect that the Constitution robustly protects the basic right to vote. And that's because the Warren Court in the 1960s interpreted our Constitution that way. But the Warren Court was openly candid that it was adopting what we now call a non-originalist methodology of interpretation. Because the actual document of the Constitution when you just look at its bare text is not as protective of voting rights as many of us believe. First, the original constitution, the 1787 document, didn't really protect voting rights at all. It left it to state government to to determine who among the state residents were entitled to vote. And obviously um, there was, you know, there was terrible denial of the right to vote for African-Americans. There was obviously slavery, but even in the non-slave states, um, voting was limited to whites for the most part, limited to men only, even men had to own property. So very narrow conception of voting at the beginning. That's been expanded um, by a series of specific amendments in the constitution, uh, but all of them are designed to deal with you know, one problem at a time. So the 15th amendment says there shall be no discrimination in voting on the basis of race. And the 19th amendment guarantees equal voting rights to men and women. But none of those amendments guarantee a basic right to vote for all citizens. Yet we think the constitution protects that. 
Why? Because the US Supreme Court in that 1960s Warren Court era said it was essential for the constitution to be basically a good constitution and have legitimacy as a system of government that it guarantee this right to vote, even if it doesn't say so. Great if you believe in that philosophy, but if you have a jurisprudence that's originalist and textualist, it's not there in the document. I gotta say, I was actually pretty surprised, um, even being a lawyer, uh, that Native Americans had to be separately granted the right to vote. It's, you know, it, it, it was pretty surprising. I learned that at the um, Museum of the American Indian on the mall. Yes, right. I mean, the, the, the degree of, of disenfranchisement in our nation's history is, you know, is tragic. Um, and it's something that we don't learn about in high school because we're embarrassed by it. And we want to teach a story of America that we're this great country. And there's many things about America that is great. And some of our ideals that are embedded in our founding are worthy to live up to, but we haven't lived up to them. And certainly with respect to Native Americans, you know, the initial attitude was that they were almost separate countries, right? And that the relationship of the United States to the um, Native tribes was almost like the relationship of the United States to Mexico or other, other countries. And, and they were conquered peoples uh, and subjugated peoples. And of course we had the Trail of Tears. And uh, it's not until um, the 20th century that we really uh, begin to remediate some of the tragedy um, on, on this score and others. But I think I, what I would say, and I, and I challenge you because you may also disagree, that I think most Americans hold deep respect for the right to vote. And they would like to see that clearly as part of our law or constitution at this point, modernly, I should say. Well, I, I, I agree with that. I think if you ask, I mean, I'm not an expert in public opinion uh, polling, but my sense of it is, is that if you ask Americans, you know, does the constitution protect the right to vote? Should it, overwhelming support of that basic idea. I agree with that. Another example in that regard is, um, you know, our constitution has the electoral college in it, which is a complicated, uh, mechanism that we can talk about, but the public opinion polling on the Electoral College is amazing relative to what our document says. You know, there have been periods in the last half century where over 80% of respondents to the Gallup poll want to get rid of the Electoral College so that we have a just much more basic, straightforward national popular vote. Again, one person, one vote, that ideal that comes from the Warren Court era, just have everybody have a vote have everybody's vote count equally, that vote for president that way, overwhelming support. And yet we've never been able to amend the constitution to have our document correspond to our own sense of ourself and our sense of our values. I think it is surprising, especially when we get around election season, uh, that people realize that, you know, I, I've heard some really grotesque statistics about how the value of a vote in Wyoming is worth X number of times more than the value of a vote in California, it just it does strike people as wrong when we are uh, we hold ourselves out um, as the greatest democracy of, of all time. And we uh, when we go overseas, I, I I worked on some of this at DoD and and have other countries model 
their uh, their governments and their their uh, their democracies off of ours, it, it is surprising that there is such an imbalance between the citizenry, um, especially considering we 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 are all paying the same federal taxes essentially. Yes, no, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I, I think actually confronting the issue of California versus Wyoming, as you say, for example, is probably the most important question we can ask ourselves as American citizens, what we think of our democracy and what we think our constitution should be with the concept of equal voting rights. Um, because the US Senate, you know, has this provision that each state, you know, the constitution says each state has two senators in the US Senate, right? So it's not one person, one vote, it's, each state gets two votes. So it's equality of states, regardless of population, not equality of, of citizenship. Um, and interestingly, it's the one provision of the constitution that we're not allowed to amend, even in the ordinary difficult way of amending the constitution. All right, the reason why we have the electoral college is because it's tough to amend the constitution. It takes two thirds of each house of um, Congress, and then you have to have ratification by three quarters of the states. And that's a huge hurdle, but you can't even use that with respect to this point about California and Wyoming, because Article Five of the Constitution, the part that talks about amending, says there's a general rule, but it doesn't apply with respect to the equal right of each state to have equal suffrage of the states in the Senate. So the, the only way you can do that is with Wyoming's consent. And if Wyoming wants to block it, Wyoming has a unilateral veto. And, and we need to ask ourselves what we think about that as Americans today. It might've made sense for that concept in 1787 with this young Republic that was a federated Republic that was trying to figure out the relationship between Massachusetts and Virginia to the United States, the national government. I, you know, I, I talked to my students about the original model was more like what we think of um, the European Union today, right? We think of France and Germany as countries and that their status as countries shouldn't be eliminated in membership of Europe. We don't think of Massachusetts as, and Virginia and New York as countries but yet the United States of America was founded on the idea that the sovereignty of Virginia and New York and Massachusetts was equivalent to the sovereignty of France or Germany or Britain or what have you. It, that doesn't really resonate in the modern world. And yet it, we're left over. And the other thing that's left over is that the population disparity between the largest state in terms of population and the smallest state back in 1780 seven was relatively small compared to now. In other words, the gap between California big and Wyoming small is a much bigger gap than what existed at the founding. And yet we're stuck and we can't even change it. So having a country devoted to the rule of law as our primary value, which as lawyers we tend to believe in, doesn't allow us to be a country that has its primary value sort of basic democracy, one person, one vote. There's a kind of disconnect between our law and our sense of ourselves as a democracy. And we don't teach in high school 
the true relationship between these two. two. So as citizens, we're not well equipped to understand our own system, unfortunately. Well, let's let's pivot for just a second because this is okay. Horrifying um, to think about. <laughs> um, Sorry, <laughs> it is important to think of the truth. But um, what I'd like to talk to you about is something on that issue of the electoral college. And one of the interesting things that I have come across is multiple reports, particularly in financial news outlets, Yahoo News, um, the Wall Street Journal, and the like, um, that has indicated that. Um, some, in this case, Republicans, um, seek to select electors who would necessarily vote for Trump through a little known process that would allow Republican controlled state legislatures um, to direct electoral votes, regardless of majority opinion. So um, as we're walking through sort of the parade of horribles, regardless of party, the idea that the majority vote can be completely overcome um, is a little bit scary, regardless of party, but can this actually be accomplished? And is it in fact a nuclear option that could have really terrible secondary tertiary consequences if somebody were to exercise it? Yeah, so I think the good news is that this is very unlikely to happen uh, because it is a nightmare scenario if it did happen and it would cut against the whole idea of we the people getting to vote and having our votes really matter. Uh, so, so I think we can sleep well at night for the most part on this point. But the reason we can is not so much the law, but because of, I think, the residual force of basic cultural norms that favor popular sovereignty, meaning we the people get to decide. Because the law itself here, again, this, you know, this is a more specific version of the theme we were just talking about, that when you actually look at the law that's relevant, it's surprisingly undemocratic, small d. Not, and this is not, again, this is a nonpartisan point just about the structure of our system. The original constitution says, and this feature still continues, that each state legislature has the power to choose the method of appointing electors, the members of the electoral college. And historically, they didn't always, the legislatures didn't always choose a popular vote as the method of appointing electors. Uh, you know, in the first couple of decades or you know, really several decades of our country, state legislatures often kept that appointment power for themselves. Not all, but most. And so, you know, you'd have the legislature saying, we're going to support the electors that we want, not let the people decide. That power still exists. Now, again, fortunately, since, you know, the middle of the 19th century, most states, and now all states, have said we're going to rely on a popular vote as the method for appointing electors. But that's by virtue of legislative choice, they could have or could next time until we amend the constitution, take that choice away and say, we're just gonna have legislative appointment. Now, again, I think very unlikely to happen unless the system derails uh, and hopefully it won't derail this year. I think the reason why it's come up this year is a fear that with the pandemic and we're with the stresses on the voting process, that and with partisan polarization and just the sense that 
both sides kind of want to win at all costs. Is there a danger of state legislatures rediscovering that they have this power and attempting to utilize it for partisan ends at the expense of voters? Again, I don't think they can do that unless conditions begin to warrant it. And to, just to finish this point by reference to what happened in 2000 in Florida, you know, if, if people remember Bush versus Gore and the hanging chads and all of that controversy 20 years ago, they'll remember sort of two basic facts. One is just how close the vote was in Florida that year. It was a margin of 537 votes separating Bush and Gore. So that's tiny. That was 6 million votes cast, the tiniest sliver. And that tiny margin was dwarfed by this problem of the hanging chads, which was a genuine problem. The machinery of voting just was not well equipped to that um, tight a race. So when the Florida legislature said, you know what, this may be a statistical tie. We don't really know who won the vote. Maybe we have to just appoint electors ourselves. There was a more plausible basis for that kind of authority. They ended up not doing it because Ultimately, the US Supreme Court ruled in favor of Bush and now Gore said, okay, I'm willing to concede. And so the legislature didn't need to step in. But that's a reminder that, that this residual power exists. And the question for us this year is what circumstances would warrant or, or call upon a legislature, say in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or elsewhere, to say, you know what, we're gonna try to reassert this power. I'd like to think they wouldn't do it just because they didn't like the result, that that because that would be complete subversion of allowing citizens to vote. You'd have to think it would be a need to be a close election and there to be a real problem that needed to be addressed. So I I recall in the 2016 election there was a discussion around faithless electors, right? So um, just to make sure everybody understands, this is a this is a bipartisan issue <laughs> when um, Trump did win the electoral college vote, there was a discussion about whether or not never Trumpers um, who are electors uh, would, you know, choose uh, Clinton over Trump and over and overcome the um, strictures of the electoral college and reflect the popular vote, right? And so there were, I remember a couple of, of state lawsuits around this. Do you, can you go into a little detail about that, Ned? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um... I think part of the, the goal of the, the faithless electors, and they like to call themselves Hamilton electors because they look back at the Federalist Papers and Alexander Hamilton writing about the fact that electors did have this discretion to be deliberative and make their own independent judgment. So they didn't want to think of themselves as faithless. They wanted to think of themselves as faithful to the Constitution. Um, but I think the more prevalent terminology is faithless because it's deviation from what the popular vote in the, in the state would be. Um, there was something of a plan that maybe the compromise choice among these Hamiltonian electors would be not Trump, not Clinton, but maybe some third person like John Kasich, for example, a more moderate Republican. But whatever the details on that, this issue was, is it appropriate? Is it even permissible in our constitutional scheme for electors to do their own thing? Um, to go rogue, if you will, if you want that terminology. 
Uh, and the Supreme Court ended up getting involved in a case earlier this year that grew out of what happened in 2016, just as you were talking about. And the Supreme Court's answer was that states have the power to insist on fidelity, meaning to eliminate, as a matter of state law, the capacity of electors to go rogue, even to the point of replacing them on the date that the Electoral College meets, so that if an elector you know, tries at the meeting to be independent, then immediately they get forfeited their spot of being an elector and get immediately replaced by some substitute who's willing to, to conform to the popular vote. So some people thought that that Supreme Court decision would eliminate this issue um, and something we don't have to think about, but that's not quite true because all the Supreme Court said and all the Supreme Court could say in that case was that states have this power. Not every state has exercised this power. Um, only about 15 states have these really strict laws that guarantee fidelity operationally that way. And so other states, this risk, if you want to call it that, or possibility of a faithless elector is still out there. I think it's unlikely to make a difference, but if we had a very close electoral college result, say 270 versus 268, so that just changing one or two electoral votes could make a difference, there might be pressure on some electors to be faithless. And it could come from any of the states that don't have these laws. It doesn't, it wouldn't have to be just one, one state. So it is a, whether you consider it an Achilles heel or just a residual feature of our system, it, it's still part of our process. I, I, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's fascinating. Um, I, let's like dig a little bit more deeply into some of the state law level decisions. Um, because as you uh, said earlier, the constitution left voting to the states and the state can delegate the you know, voting procedures down to the municipal level. Um, and since you have literally written the book on election litigation over the centuries, can you just give us the, the highlights of major cases um, on elections that landed in, in state courts and how they were decided? Yeah, um, so it is, I think, an important history because it's a lens on our development as a country of how we've grown as a democracy, because I do think we have grown. But some issues that were unsettled at the founding still leave us with problems. And I think the one key takeaway on this is what's the right institution of law and government to handle a high stakes voting dispute of counting ballots. And this was discovered for the very first time by the founding generation in a dispute in New York state over the governor's election of 1792. And it's a fun story to think about because the founders all wrote letters about it and were involved because John Jay, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers was running for governor. And interestingly, he was willing to leave his seat as Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court to run for governor of New York. That just shows the relative importance of those positions. Again, that's like, again, New York, the sovereign state of New York, that was like France. That was more, it was more important to be governor of New York than Chief Justice of the United States. I mean, don't tell John Roberts that. He probably thinks he has a pretty good job and would rather be Chief Justice of the US. But John Jay was um, willing to make that trade. Uh, he lost though because he lost over a counting of ballots in Cooperstown, New York. 
If there are any of you baseball fans out there, you know Cooperstown is where the Baseball Hall of Fame is, but that's where there was a fight over ballots. It wasn't hanging chads because they didn't have punch card voting machines, but this same basic conceptual issue was involved right then at the beginning of the founding and could be involved this year over absentee ballots, even though we've eliminated hanging chads. What was the issue? It was strict construction on the one hand, because you've got to interpret election laws strictly because rules are rules and you don't want anybody manipulating the rules during the counting of votes. That was one side of the dispute. The other side was, wait a second, we have elections to serve voters. We don't want disenfranchisement. So we don't want voters to be caught up in technicalities. So sometimes we have to interpret statutes leniently to protect voters from wrongful disenfranchisement. That's exactly the issue that's going on right now all around the country about absentee ballot deadlines or witness signature requirements on absentee ballots or the, the other rules. Again, they didn't have absentee voting in 1792, but they had this philosophical debate about how you deal with conflict when it's time to count ballots that might make a difference in a big race. And both sides were livid. And what was really important about that election is it showed the development of party competition when the nation was still young because the authors of the constitution uh, and the founders like John Jay and Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, the authors of the Federalist Papers, they were hoping that they would create a system that would avoid two-party conflict. They knew that there would be factions, right? Factions is a word that they use for what we would call interest groups. They were smart enough to know that there would be bankers and there would be farmers and there would be merchants. And so economic interests would affect politics. But they thought that separation of powers and other structures of government could be kind of a divide and conquer strategy, that you could keep the factions in check and there wouldn't be permanent parties. There would be these shifting coalitions of these interest groups. It didn't work out that way. You know, the constitution was written in 1787, but by 1792 already, just five years later, we start to see two-party competition. And we see James Madison writing an essay called Why Parties? While even though he didn't like parties five years earlier, he now was the proud member of what he was already calling the Republican Party be in opposition to the Federalist Party because his party was the party of the people, the Republican Party, the Federalists, that was the party of the, the, the creditor class, the bankers. And this was all playing out in New York. And here's the key point. When you've got this party conflict, what's the institution that's gonna tell you who wins this all important race for governor? They didn't create an institution that was nonpartisan. And they, didn't, and they realized the legislature had become engulfed in partisan politics. They hadn't allowed for courts to be involved yet. And James Kent, that may be a name that means something to lawyers because he was an early figure of American law. He was, he was like the American Blackstone. He wrote the commentaries like Blackstone did. And he is, is a young lawyer in the midst of the 1792 dispute. And he writes a letter to his brother and he says, we need an equally biased 
tribunal. Isn't that an odd phrase, equally biased? It suggests that everybody's gonna have an opinion because you're on one side or the other. So the tribunal that's gonna decide who wins needs to be equally, we would say equally fair and partial, but he was struggling for the terminology. And that struggle at our founding is a struggle that we're with today. We still don't have a really good institution in American government to handle these kinds of disputes. I think that um, just given what you're, what you're talking about, um, the politicization of the court, of the Supreme Court, um, really does uh, illustrate um, your point right now. Um, just yesterday, we had a, a four to four decision. Um, the Supreme Court sent uh, back to Pennsylvania uh, the lower court's decision allowing early voting to uh, early voting ballots to be counted uh, three days after election day. Uh, and the fact that it's these decisions that are are going to affect um, you know the ballot count in key states like Pennsylvania. And it's it's really concerning, um, especially considering all of the storm and drang around the still ongoing um, appointment process or nomination process for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, I um, and I wrote another piece for The Washington Post recently sort of on this point and, and part of the history that I wrote about in the book Ballot Battles was there have been some examples of success. So Minnesota, interestingly enough, had two disputed elections, very high stakes, one back in 1962 for governor again, and then one in 2008 for US Senate. People may remember this was um, Al Franken, the comedian challenging then the incumbent Senator Norm Coleman. Uh, Al Franken ultimately prevails and becomes a Senator. And what's important about both of those Minnesota elections is they had a mechanism for creating a special three judge court designed solely for this vote counting dispute of, the, of this nature. And the whole concept was that the tribunal should be structured to be fair to both sides, given you, know, you were gonna have Democrats on one side and Republicans on the other. So how did they do this? In 1962, what they did was they found one, and, and they had a, a, a rule that said the chief justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court could create this tribunal to, for the ballot counting dispute. So in 1962, the chief, chief justice said, I'm gonna pick three judges and I'm gonna insist that you, the attorneys for both candidates approve my choice. So we're gonna be all in this together. It was sort of modeled on labor management arbitration. So they had one judge who was clearly a Democratic appointee, a second judge who was clearly a Republican appointee, and then they had a third judge who was from neither party um, and who was seen by both sides as neutral. So that became your three-judge panel. It could break a tie if necessary because it had three members, but turned out it was unanimous in all of its decisions, lending legitimacy to the result. And it turned out the incumbent ended up losing the recount that that body supervised and gave way to the, to the new governor. A similar situation in 2008, um, they called it the tripartisan panel because um, Minnesota, interestingly, you know, has the Democrats, has the Republicans, but then Jesse Ventura was a governor of the so-called Independence Party, which is sort of an independent or third party 
uh, uh, movement in the state. And so they created a three judge panel, one Democrat, one Republican, one appointee of Jesse Ventura to be again, structurally fair and neutral. And that panel also ended up being unanimous, at least publicly unanimous in all of its decisions. Behind closed doors, maybe they had some disagreement, but they wanted to show how they could do this fairly. And I mention that now, because I think it's the best that our history has been able to come up with. And I think it could be used if the US Supreme Court wanted to, to deal with the, the, the perception issue that you're talking about. Right now, the court itself is caught up in partisan politics and this confirmation battle. The US Supreme Court has the authority to appoint special masters in any case that it wants to, that are under, they're like fancy law clerks. Um, and the court uses them mostly for cases within its original jurisdiction docket. These tend to be water disputes out in Colorado or California, and they're very fact intensive. But the same power could exist, at least in this one year maybe of this difficult election case, the court could create either a single special master or even better, a three judge special master panel modeled on this idea of labor management arbitration. You're gonna have one clearly from the democratic side, another clearly from the Republican side, let the two of them choose the third because if the two anchor members of the panel pick the third, you know you have equality of representation and then the US Supreme Court could overrule that decision if they wanted to, but they might say to themselves, well, hey, can we do any better than the panel that we've created for this special purpose? Because that would go back to James Kent saying that's, a, that's an equally um, representative tribunal of both sides. It's as impartial and as fair a body as can be. And so maybe we will accept their verdict as our own verdict. You know, I don't know that they'll do that, but if they don't do that, they run the risk of another Bush versus Gore, where if the court divides along what seems to be partisan lines, then the court doesn't trust, excuse me, then the country doesn't necessarily trust the court's judgment as, as much as the court, I think, would like to be trusted. The ruling that you just referred to by the Supreme Court um, did divide along party lines with justice um, Chief Justice joining um, what would, I guess, be considered the liberal or more open liberal democratic wing of the party. So that is an, an, an interesting prediction, but I always like to hear problems solved and new ideas. So I'm enjoying listening to that. Um, and if and I could just uh, jump, I do think it, that ruling um, from the Pennsylvania case, it, it was an important development that the Chief Justice um, in essence, did not join the other Republican appointees on the court to create this 4-4 split. And there was no opinion issued, so we can only guess, but it seems as if he's, he's struggling to have the court maintain a kind of nonpartisanship. We've, we've heard Chief Justice Roberts talk about the need for the federal judiciary to be impartial and nonpartisan. Um, and so I think what he was trying to do was in keeping with that, but there are pressures on him and his institution. Um, obviously the fact that it was a 4-4 split and not 8-0 
is an indication of some struggle at the court. It took three weeks, which surprised people. And then, of course, there will be a ninth justice um, that may make it hard for the chief justice to be the neutral navigator of the ship, so to speak. So um, I don't think the end of the story is, is written either for this year or into the future on how the court navigates difficult election cases. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Tune in again next week for part two of our conversation with Ned Foley about election law and major cases like Bush versus Gore that have shaped the election law landscape in recent years. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on your platform of choice, follow us on Twitter at ABANATSEC, find us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, or shoot us an email at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org. And above all else, remember to vote. Election day is coming up and early voting has already started in many jurisdictions. Do not forget the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity, not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, everyone. Be safe. We're all in this together, even though we are apart. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.